Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Look, no beating around the bush today. We are so excited to bring on today's guest. We have had a, a flurry of tennis media personalities on the Cracked Interviews podcast recently, with the U.S. Open being done, with there being less focus on the tennis, more time to focus on the bigger picture. It is so great to get these to get to have these conversations, and it is why I am so thrilled to be joined by one of the hosts of this year's U.S. Open Now series, a former player at Duke uh, women, for Duke Women's Tennis. By her own account, a non Sean McVay type, the wonderful <laughs> Prim Seripapat. Prim, welcome to the Cracked Interviews podcast. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I do not have a picture perfect memory. So if you're asking me any questions about my career, my tennis career, which I heard you guys have done quite extensively, <laughs> I. Just be prepared. <laughs> yeah, look, I like to do my research before these podcasts. I went into the Duke uh, women's tennis archives. You guys, I think it was like 40 <laughs> straight ACC wins during your tenure there. Did, do the records go that far back? Because there have been times when I tried. That far back? I... <laughs> it was like 2000. No, but I mean, like, that was before. I feel like that was kind of before or during the launch of the internet in ways of they didn't. You know, they didn't keep track of a lot of records because there were some things that streak that you were talking about. There were some things I was like, I can't remember how long it was like 11 years, 100 something <laughs> matches. I can't remember. I, so I would go back and I'm like, I can't find it anywhere in the Internet. <laughs> 2000 <laughs> NCAA. Archives. I was going to say 2000 NCAA championships. First round, number six singles. Sarip with the Pat defends decent 6160. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Yeah, you yep. can see it all. It's great. Although I will say Arizona State 6 and 2, that one had to have hurt. Yeah, that was a that was a shocker. I actually I remember playing one of my girlfriends from high school in that match. Um that was that was a little tough one. We we went out a little too earlier <laughs> than we had hoped. <laughs> yeah, and look, I, we will talk about your time at Duke Tennis, your background with the sport. Uh, but the place I want to start, fresher on everyone's mind, the U.S. Open. You were part of the U.S. Open Now team. You were there for the full two weeks. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so it was it was unlike anything I've, I've ever been a part of in my 16-year broadcasting career. Um, so the U.S. Open and USTA launched a new digital lifestyle show that served as a companion to the tournament. So um, we weren't airing any live tennis per se, but it was basically like if you were watching the U.S. Open and watching matches on one screen, what we offered were basic, was basically just a behind-the-scenes look at the tournament. And it was really cool because we would do a ton of player interviews. We would do uh, a lot of different features like food, fashion, um, interviews with different kinds of guests that you might not typically see on a larger network, such as you know the strength and conditioning coaches, uh, obviously some of the coaches, the hitting partners. So it, it was it was really really fun, and we were we were on air for eight hours straight, no commercial breaks basically, but eight hours straight for the first ten days, <laughs> and then after that anywhere from two to four hours. So it was it was a lot of talking. I was shocked that I didn't lose my voice by the tenth day. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's ridiculous. Eight hours straight. And look, you, there are so many different aspects to talk about with tennis, and you guys real, really did cover all of them. But I have to ask, I was a big fan of your basketball work as well. You've done a bunch of different tennis media coverage. To get to have Kobe Bryant on the set, mm. that had to have been pretty cool. That was pretty awesome. I mean, we all we all know, you know, in covering these events, that when a lot of those A-list celebrities come through, only only a handful of the the shows are going to get Kobe Bryant, and it obviously helps that he's retired, so he has a bit more time on his hands, and he and he's also promoting a book, so he was much more willing to talk about that. But yeah, I mean, when we heard, when Jamie and I heard that he was going to come through, uh, we were we were pretty stoked. I was surprised actually that that we got that, but it was with the help of the USTA and shout out to da- Danielle Cranin with the USTA for, for helping us um, reel him in. But he was, he was really cool. Um, happy to come on and talk about tennis. That was his first U S open experience. Yeah. It was so cool. Just the entire U S open now series to get to have that different aspect of the coverage because the U S open is America's super bowl of tennis. It, it really seems to bring out uh, anyone who's in New York who I feel like that ticket must be a bunch of money, but like Manu Ginobili is there every time I have to mm-hmm. ask, like, how does Lynn Mel, Lynn Manuel Miranda get that first row seat for every, like you, you can't pay, <laughs> like that's gotta be a sponsorship deal. So that was so cool. But for you, I guess, to get to focus on the non-tennis aspects, to get to highlight all that's going on on the grounds, what, what were maybe the three highlights of that? Uh, what were the highlights of just the doing of doing the show yeah, other top, than the tennis? Top three guests. Oh, top three guests? Definitely Kobe Bryant. <laughs> um, ben Stiller. I think we got him immediately after Kobe Bryant that same day, if I remember correctly. And um, I will... You know, I got to go with the, the former Blue Devil, JJ. That was pretty cool. JJ Reddick popped on. I haven't seen it. So he was a little freshman when I was a senior. And um, so I haven't seen him in, in a really long time. I've stayed in touch with a bunch of the other guys from that from that squad, like Boozer and Jay Wills, Duhon. Um, Battier, Battier came through ESPN and we did a sports center together. But I haven't seen JJ in years. So that, that was pretty cool. That was some beautiful name dropping. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That was was really fun for both of us. Um, But I I guess for you to, why did you think and why at your U.S. Open Now team think it was important to cover those other non-tennis aspects of the U.S. Open? Well, I think it because, you know, as you mentioned, this is kind of the Super Bowl of tennis. It is the largest sporting annual sporting events in the country. Amazingly, Um, this is over the NBA finals, over the Super Bowl. And, and anything else, largely because it, it just spans across two to three weeks. But I think because it, it really is an experience, um, and that's what sporting events are all about these days. It's, it's not just about the sport. It's about, it, from my opinion, and, and especially coming from the perspective of a, of a tennis player, it's also about community and making relationships and nurturing them. It's about um, continuing the, the bond with this special tennis family. It's also you know, just the, the fun aspect of going to the U S open, you have like, you have the daytime session, the nighttime session, drinks, food, socialization, you know, all these red carpet events, celebrities, regular people. It's just, it's just a different experience. For you as a former tennis player, were you just itching to get on the court at some point? This tournament? 
Yeah, no. I mean, you, not even during the ninth year. I was like, I got to hit for at least one of these hours. Well, actually, I yeah, I was going to say no, but yeah, there's. I always <laughs> do kind of get the itch, especially when there's a ton of my former tennis friends and colleagues there because I'm really, and plus you got a bunch of tennis tennis courts out there, so it's like ah, let's go hit. And I think <laughs> <laughs> I think it was the day twelve. I think it was. It was the second Thursday where we ended up. I do it. I ended up doing a twenty minute feature on how to properly warm up. So uh, my buddy and I, Mark Lucero, who I know you know, um, we did this feature and we ended up hitting for about 20 to 30 minutes, not nearly as long as I had hoped to hit. <laughs> but the U.S. Open was like, you know what, we got to use these courts for <laughs> something and some actual players, so y'all got to get off. <laughs> I feel like the Saturday, though, you could be like, no one's here. Like, I'm taking court six. I'm sorry, guys, but I'm doing it. You would think so, but there's also juniors, and there's also the wheelchair events also, and then there's a senior event, too. Yeah, I think you'd be shocked at how, how much they actually use the courts, and everybody's always warming up and doing something. Yeah. So. That's fair. I'm, I'm not important enough. Now, Andy, <laughs> Andy Roddick actually came through, and I think I saw James Blake, and they clearly had just come off the court, and they were not <laughs> preparing for anything, so they can use the courts. But I am, me being a Z-list celebrity, I am not allowed on the courts. <laughs> You're working your way up, though. You're on the list, though. That's, uh, that's I might more be like most. a Y. I'm, well, I'm a Y-list celebrity. I would say call, call your guys JJ and Booze. And I mean, you know, <laughs> that, that could probably help you get through the lines. Um, okay. <laughs> that makes that moves me up to an X, X-list celebrity. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing that was certainly cool to see, and as you know, you're a great Twitter follow, and I know going into the women's final, you were and watching U.S. Open now, you were confident about Bianca Andreescu's chances. Getting to see her play for the two weeks, what was it about her performance that had you thinking she was ready to beat Serena and win her first Grand Slam? I mean, there's just something about her that is. Um, it's less about her technical skills or anything that you can really pinpoint. It's just an energy that one can one can see in her eyes. She just looks like a champion. It, it sounds kind of cliche or it sounds simplistic, but she carries herself with a certain confidence. I mean, during the whole two weeks, you would hear people talk about Andrescu and maturity was the adjective that would often describe her. But she does. She she kind of carries herself with as if she's a 30 to 35 year old she seems like a veteran on the court and she's really fearless it on that big stage and I think that's that's just the biggest that's a huge x factor when you you are a young star up and coming and also playing against arguably the greatest of all time because most of the time when you have some of these young stars going up against a, a player like Serena Williams they've already They've already lost before they step foot on the court. But Andrescu, and there's there's a bunch of them right now. There's there's a group of them that are coming in. And for whatever reason, they just have a completely different mindset. Naomi Osaka is one of them. Um, Coco is kind of kind of in that camp. She's still a little young, so she's still she's still got a ways to go. But um, I, I just loved Andrescu's maturity and her her love for that big stage. And yeah. also her, her, yeah, her game too. I mean, she, <laughs> I don't know if you can tell, but like she hits the heck out of that ball. She can go, she can match Serena's power. 
I thought for sure you were about to say she hits the f out of the ball, and we were about to get our first swear from you. Sorry, oh my sorry, God. sorry. I thought about it. I told you I haven't, <laughs> I haven't sworn yet on any podcast or media outlet. I haven't done it yet. I'm too scared. I'm afraid somebody's gonna like pull out the ruler and snap my hand. <laughs> yeah, no, we're not in Saddlebrook anymore. I'm not gonna do that to you. I swear. Um, but no, you you know another thing I would swear is the more impressive match for me was not her win over Serena as great as that was, but the way she came back against Benchich. I think Benchich mm. in that semifinal against Andrescu was leading. Was it five two in the first set, maybe? But it felt like she, or maybe it was yeah. five two in the second. But she felt in control for the first half of both of the sets in that match. And Andrescu won it in straight sets. It's like to do that in your first semifinal against one of mm-hmm. your fellow young contemporaries. I mean, she's a special talent. She really is. She she really is. I I you know that that match was was certainly impressive. I think I'm I'm actually I hear what you're saying. For whatever reason, I'm less impressed with the comeback because I feel uh, for me as a player, it was always easy to come back, muster a comeback when. Um, because there's, there's, there's nothing, um, there's no pressure on you. I think that the, the more challenging thing, at least in my eyes was stepping onto Ash in the finals and being able to not only play so well against Serena, but close it out, like closing it out as we saw is, is one of the harder things to do in tennis and for, for her to keep her foot on the gas pedal the entire time and to capitalize and execute and close it out against Serena. That was the one thing that I was like, man, this girl is a baller. Yeah, absolutely. And now the really interesting part is going to be how does she handle the pressure of, okay, now you've won. What's the next act? And uh, I'm curious because we did, I did a winners and losers with your U S open now co-host Nick McCarville last week. And mm-hmm. I think if we were to do that list now, one of my biggest winners, the Bianca Andreescu victory tour. I mean, it has been so fun to see her go from Jimmy Fallon to, you know, yeah. conversing with Drake. And the next question is, you know, how does she handle it on the court as well? I think she, I think, I actually think that she's going to handle it pretty, pretty well. Um, you know, that we'll, we'll see in the upcoming months, I would say within the next year or year and a half, as we saw with Naomi, she, she handled it with grace and followed her U.S. Open win up with another major victory at the Aussie Open. But then immediately following that, that's where things kind of unraveled a little bit. And, and she even said that she, she didn't, she wasn't appreciating the sport as much as she had and, and things became not fun. And I think it'll be interesting to see how Andrescu handles all of that, because as we know, once somebody becomes a champion, now you have all of these not not only fun things and activities to do, like appearing on Jimmy Fallon and parading the, the trophy around, but now you're going to have all these obligations with the media and all these different appearances. And over time, that becomes kind of exhausting, and it becomes a responsibility that rather than fun. But I think she's got a pretty steady head on her shoulders and I I think she's gonna figure out a way to to balance all of that yeah and I mean the success she's had this season speaks for itself it wasn't just this U.S. Open run it was you know she wins in uh, Montreal I think it was in Toronto this year she Mm -hmm. I think she's lost like four times all season she won in Indian Wells as well so when she was healthy and you know playing on a hard court she was probably the best player on the WTA tour this year and so yeah it's 
The craziest part is she's 19 years old. You forget that because, as you mentioned, the poise she plays with, it's such a – she displays such a level of maturity for her age in those biggest stages. She doesn't play not to lose. It seems like she's always swinging away. She's playing to win. And I guess for you, I I, I think – was this your first Grand Slam? You were there for the full two weeks? Uh, no. I had been – I had covered the U.S. Open back in – as a member of the media – uh in 2011 or 2012 2011 was my first time with ESPN and then 2012 was the first year that I spent the whole two weeks there yeah so, so this this was yeah this was probably my sixth or seventh maybe fifth or sixth that I had spent the whole two weeks there I'm so jealous again um but <laughs> yeah uh I guess just to see this run from Andrescu I I just I can't remember seeing another young player have this sort of success at least in in this decade yeah, uh, I mean, Osaka did it last year, and at that time she was, what, tw- 20 years old? Yeah, I, I so, guess I should have said with her, just back-to-back to see these two runs. It, 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 to me, yeah. it symbolizes there really is a generational shift coming. It feels like it's inevitable. I think there is, and I don't, I don't really know. I, I, you know, after the U.S. Open, I thought about it, and I was just thinking, you know, why are there, why is there this influx of young blood coming through and they don't just pop onto the stage and um you know there there really is like an influx of young blood right now between Osaka even though she's 21 years old don't forget we also have Anna Samova who didn't appear at the US Open um because of the death of her father so but she's certainly somebody to consider Coco Goff she's so young and then her doubles partner, Katie McNally, is all also in the picture as well. I mean, there's, I, I don't know how else to describe it, but there's just like a, a fearlessness among all these girls. And they really feel as though they belong on the professional tour and they belong on the court with people like Serena and Venus Williams, as we saw from Coco at Wimbledon last year, ousting Venus in the earlier rounds at Wimbledon. So it, it's it's really cool. Uh, I I just think the funny thing is, the Williams sisters are the people responsible for paving the way for this young generation of players, and now the the Williams sisters are having to face these players, and the people that they inspired are now taking them out <laughs> of the picture and, and knocking them out of these tournaments, which is crazy. Yeah, I mean by two thousand, Serena Williams, I believe, had already won a Grand Slam title. And like that's when Bianca Andreescu was born. So that's just a crazy perspective. And one of the stats I turned to all year in the sixteen semifinal spots available uh, for women in singles uh, throughout the year, I think fourteen different women made semifinals at Grand Slams. It was only Serena and Svitolina who made multiple semifinals. It speaks to the fact that yeah, there are a lot of spaces, and as dominant as Serena and Venus have been the past twenty years, uh, they're as good as. Serena, even still, she's made four slam finals in the last eight slams. Yeah. There, the, there is an opening. You know, no one is at the peak Serena level right now. And it's if, you, if you're playing the best over a two-week span, you can win the event. I think at the French Open, Von Drusova, another young player, she made the final there. Uh, I don't think anyone—she had been good up to the year in that point, but I don't think anyone expected a final. It really shows that if you're hot over the two weeks, you can make a run. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I just think that's the nature of 
on the women's side right now, um, the stat that I, I kept on dropping during the U.S. Open was uh, the beginning of the year was a really good indication of what we are going to see for the next year or even two years. The first 18 events on the women's side on the WTA tour were won by 18 different winners, which is really, that's so unheard of in years past, especially over the last 10 years. Um, before this, before this wave of, of young blood, we, we saw a lot of 30 something year olds dominate a lot of these tournaments, including Serena, maybe a little bit of, um, Venus, but the Simona Halep's of the world, um, Kerber, but now, now it's almost as if the moment Serena left the picture, which kind of simultaneously went or coincided with Maria Sharapova's absence, even though she wasn't nearly as dominant as Serena. But when those two left the picture, just briefly, it opened the gateway for everybody else. And now that both of them are back in the picture, I think they're just kind of like, wow, I, things are different now and I'm a different player and I'm not. And I think Serena, especially after this U S open, I think she's going to make some serious changes. I think this, this literally happened for a reason. I, I believe that that was Andrescu's day and it's going to take four defeats in grand slam finals for Serena to really kick it for her to, kick it into gear and realize that she's she's going to have to continue working hard, but she's also going to have to change some things along the way if she wants to win another Grand Slam. I'm going to give a slight counterpoint to that. Yeah. She, she won 1-0 <laughs> in the quarterfinals, 3-1 over Svitolina in the semifinals, even though, she lo- you know, even though she lost in the final. Throughout the total tournament, she lost three total sets. I mean, she looked really, really good. I, I don't know if... I just feel like, what is there for Serena to change, right? Like, the things she does. Her mental, she, her mental perspective, uh, so, right? Uh, yeah, because, okay. No, 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 go ahead, go ahead. No, 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 I'm curious what you mean by that. So, um, so obviously, like, she, she doesn't need to change anything physically, right? Because she's in the best condition, uh, her, the best shape she, she's been since she returned as a mother. Mm-hmm. But obviously, the fact that she gets to the finals multiple times in the Grand Slam but for whatever reason, every single time, four consecutive times, she's lost in straight sets. Yeah. That's not physical. That's mental. So what that means is she is – the way she's perceiving and processing these situations, which is trying to get Grand Slam number four, something is off. So she's obviously maybe putting too much pressure on herself. Maybe she's defining herself. Through this 24, maybe she feels as though there's expectations for her to do it, which there are, but that means that she's got some work to do from a mental perspective about shifting her perspective and knowing how to play the same way that she does heading into those finals matches and maintaining that same um, mental approach. Because... When we didn't see this U.S. Open, we didn't see her struggling with her serve before that day, and we didn't see her shanking backhands the way she did. She was, you know, she was missing balls left and right by, you know, a five foot margin. It was crazy. That's that's not technical. That's not physical. That's mental. And so there are, def- I believe, there are definitely things that she can do to change that. But a lot of that 
I mean, maybe she, that means she continues to work with a sports psychologist or a therapist. I mean, so the Kerber match uh, from last year's Wimbledon really stands out because that's not a matchup with all due respect to Angelique Kerber, who's obviously fantastic, a multiple time Grand Slam champion. She mm-hmm. doesn't hurt Serena in the way in Osaka and in Andrescu can from the baseline. I mean, Osaka and Andrescu just hit the ball so hard. And with all due respect to Serena, at 36, 37 years old, she doesn't move the way she used to. So I think the way they were able to make her play defense in particular is why they were able to have success maybe where others didn't during the tournament. But yeah, you, you talk about that Simona Halep match. Did Simona Halep play brilliant tennis? Absolutely. But you think traditionally a Serena Williams uh, performance, she would have found the adjustment. She would have made more first serves, found a way to play more attacking tennis. And you're right that the aggressiveness that allowed her to win 23 grand slams in those biggest moments, it just seems to be a little off in these last couple of finals. Yeah, I'll put it this way. All right. If anybody who watched US Open now, they saw me drop a lot of dating analogies, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I kind of like using I like using life experiences because they might draw some comparison and, and shed some light onto what goes on in sports. Um, the mental side is fascinating to me. So you ever see, I'm going to use a guy because guys are the ones <laughs> that are typically going after girls, right? Because you guys are the ones you know, that have to approach a girl and ask them out. I don't always envy that. It takes a lot of gum, a lot of gumption. I'm sure you have seen, and maybe this has happened to yourself, but you're cool, calm, collect guy. So maybe you don't panic. And and when you're talking to a delightful and attractive young lady, but I'm sure you've seen a lot of your friends when the moment counts and they're speaking to a girl that they really care about, or they're super attracted to, that they hit the panic button and all of a sudden they start freaking out and start acting like a complete idiot. And you're like, what are you doing? You are completely walking (laughs) away from your game right now. And then if they are somehow able to execute the game plan and ask her out and they go on a date, then they probably do something even more boneheaded and completely choke in the situation. And that is a good comparison in terms of what, Serena did when it counts she is I don't like to use the word choke because she hasn't been choking but when it's been when it really counts and something is really on the line she started to hit 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 the panic button a little bit and she started to DTM she was just doing too much yeah and so this speaks to my ego I'm blushing (laughs) oh my god you called me cool and collected but I mean how many times I've seen it firsthand with a lot of my guy friends. Like, literally, they are cool and calm. And with me, I've always been just kind of like a a guy's girl, hanging out, whatever. And they're just normal, fun. I'm like, if you just act this way around girls, like, you you would be in a great situation. But then the moment they get around a couple of hotties, they turn (laughs) into complete boneheads. I'm like, who are you right now? What are you doing? It's just unbelievable yeah there's no doubt slam number 24 is that is that prize object for serena is the thing she is after more than anything and you see it yeah no i mean it's she wants it um (laughs) and i don't know if only she knows this but i don't know if she i think she knows she has to work for it but i'm curious if she's she's started to expect it and when you expect a result to happen, 
that's when the word should comes into the picture. And the word should for athletes is a very dangerous wood, uh, dangerous word. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think a lot of it's going to have to do with her doing some work. She had mentioned in that, that article with uh, Vogue, I believe it was, when she was talking about her, when she mentioned her apology to Naomi Osaka. And immediately after that, she actually started seeing a therapist. And, um, you know, maybe there's, if she's continuing with that process, I actually, I'm a huge proponent for, uh, you know, mental health and therapy and all that stuff. And, and who knows, maybe she'll continue with that. And that might be the one thing that helps her. Yeah. And I, I do want to ask about a, a little bit more about the U.S. Open, but you talk about the mental health aspect. You look at this point of the season, uh, all the Grand Slams are done, and that would be notable, except tennis is an 11-month, maybe even 11-and-a-half-month season. And now for this post-Grand Slam stretch, uh, you bring up the mental health. How important is that aspect? How easy do you think it is for players to be worn down at this point of the year? Oh, man. I don't... It's exhausting. You're you're right. It's definitely a 365 day sport. Um, even though you know you get a couple weeks here and there to take some time off, but but it's a it's a grind unlike any other sport. I mean, maybe the only comparable one might be golf because it's very international and you're traveling all over the world and and going to a different tournament every single week. But but tennis has especially today. Tennis is such a physically demanding and grueling sport. I just don't think anything anything is really like it. Uh, so once you once you start throwing in the jet lag, I mean, several years ago when I when I did a little when I did my comeback, I think the one thing that I realized and really took for granted was just the the jet lag that you experience. And I remember working with my trainers and my nutritionists, and they were saying like, "Don't forget that traveling is one of the hardest things on your body." Because there's dehydration, there's you know the altitude, and uh, affects your blood circulation and all that stuff. And when I was competing at the age of 35 versus 18, it was a completely different experience. So I couldn't pop off the plane and train like I used to. And not to mention, if you're dealing with a five-hour time difference or 12-hour time difference, if you're going from the U.S. to let's say Asia, which is what a lot of the players are doing right now, or even Australia. That you got to give yourself at least at least several days to to get acclimated. It's really hard. Yeah, you went and played in 2017 in Turkey, and then you played a couple events in Poland as well. What is that like when you're transitioning? You know, you're, you're traveling there. You're there. Uh, you get maybe a day to hit and acclimate to the surfaces. I just imagine it's such a difficult transition. It really, I mean, it really is. You can't give yourself a day because that's just. Um, you got to give yourself at least at least several days. I mean, there are players that will actually head overseas uh, and train over in Europe for anywhere from four to six weeks just to get acclimated to that type of surface because the clay that we have, especially the red clay that we have over here, it's not nearly as fine. I mean, it's basically like a hard court, and the balls are traveling faster and bouncing um, almost to perfection compared to what you would experience over in. Europe and also South America, where the red clay is really, really, really fine. And there's a lot of bumps. And especially in the, if you're, you know, if you have no ranking, which I didn't, and you're playing at some of the, the lower tiered, grittier 
disgusting <laughs> pro tournaments where there's cranes and construction going on right behind your tennis court like mine was in Turkey. I mean, you've got to be prepared for some really bad bounces and not so great conditions. <laughs> Yeah, and just I again for you when when you're going week to week, place to place, how do you how did you stay mentally fit? Uh, what do you think the approach players, you know, how important is it that they stay, you know, mentally composed when they're doing these sorts of trips? Yeah, I think the way to stay mentally composed, uh, and I think a lot of players know this by now, is just to basically develop a routine um, to maintain your conditioning and also your training in between these tournaments. So, you know, the grind of being on the professional tour is you're not going to come out and, and go deep into every tournament. And the, everybody at the very beginning, there's a lot of losing. And mm -hmm. most of the time throughout one's career, you're going to lose more than you win. So the key is, is to be able to create a system and a plan in between those losses and in between tournaments so you can maintain and continue to develop your confidence as a player. And for, and for everybody, that's, that's different. But for me, it was about repeti repetition and also maintaining my health. So a lot of that would be, you know, training on the court for maybe an hour and a hour and a half, but also doing a lot of stuff off the court too, whether that's rehab, recovery, prehab, conditioning, working on endurance and, and, and all that jazz. Um, and for me, it was also in terms of the mental stuff, it was journaling and meditating and doing a lot of mental imagery. Those were things that I did pretty much every day and still continue to. And this will be how I transitioned back and we can round off our U.S. Open. During uh, the U.S. Open, I'm, I'm reading an Instagram post from you. Instead of twirling today, I'm flat out sprinting into the final day of the U.S. <laughs> Open. Uh, just from a media aspect, because I, people don't realize 92 hours, you win eight hours straight the first couple of days. It, it gets yeah. exhausting. Uh, what is the most difficult part uh, and how do you stay in rhythm when you're doing uh, these sorts of media events? Uh, in rhythm physically or mentally? I guess both. Um, well, you know, I, I guess it's, uh, it's not too different than what an athlete would say is you take one, one game at a time. You take one day <laughs> at a time. <laughs> it really is though, but it, it sounds so cliche, but it, it really is true. I mean, um, but I think just to keep a perspective of the, the larger picture, you know, it's like, you know, that this is just. This is going to be 15 days. For us, it was 15 days because we started the Sunday before the tournament um, kicked off. And so it's two weeks for me out of the entire year. So you just kind of count down the days. And also, you just, you just have fun with it, too. And for me, it's all about doing whatever makes me feel good about myself, whether that's as a member of the media and broadcaster, which means a lot of prep preparation, that makes me feel comfortable with what I'm doing so I can um, so I'm well read and studied about about a lot of the players and the bigger storyline so I can go off the cuff and talk about for eight hours certainly I ran out of things to talk about <laughs> by the third hour but <laughs> at least I could like repeat myself and then for me as as many people probably know especially just like briefly looking at my Instagram it's trying to be physically fit, you know, that, that makes me super happy. So if I can get in the gym, you know, at least every other day and, and somehow stay fit, that makes me feel good about myself. You talked about the narratives. One other actually storyline. What did you think of the crowd booing and then eventually falling in love with Daniil Medvedev? Yeah, man. Uh, you know, I, 
I don't know if they fell back in love with <laughs> Medvedev. <laughs> uh, or maybe maybe that's just me being, I am a little biased. I was not happy with the shenanigans that he pulled on the court. Um, because I don't know him well personally. So over the course of the US Open, I, I did a little due diligence to dig up some some informa- information about Medvedev. Not that I was going to do any reporting on him, but I just wanted to personally find out for myself because this is a guy that could definitely be one of one of the successors to the big three. And and I I found out some stories that were not favorable about Medvedev. And in fact, they were probably worse than some of the shenanigans that he pulled. One one of them actually happened several years ago at a challenger and it involves some racial comments and slurs to the point where he got defaulted and kicked off the court. So after I found that out, I'm like, all right, well, this guy clearly has a history. You can chalk it up to, now I'm going on my little soapbox here and rant, you can cut me off. But I mean, you know, you can chalk it up to, yeah, he's young, he's 21 years old, but come on, like, he's not 15. He's 21 years old, 21 years old. You're, you're, you've been around for a while and he's the youngest is he? Yeah. He's the youngest player in the top 10, but he's made it there. And he was a fixture all of last year. This guy knows what he's doing. And, um, I think he's got some, he says that he's got some work to do and he acknowledged that and he apologized. So I appreciate that. I appreciate the accountability, but I just think that if he, if he wants to remain a fixture in the top 10 and be a true successor to one of the big three and for a very long time, he's got to work on his attitude because there's no time for that, that junk when you're a champion. If you want to be a champion once, like, yeah, you can get away with that. But if you want to be a champion multiple times, like Rafa or Roger, you can't, you can't do that. Yeah, I, I, that's completely fair. I I agree. When you're you know snatching things from the towel, uh, you just you can't do that. And flipping off the crowd, there there's just things that were unnecessary. I completely agree. And you're right. He does talk about the need to work on it, but he's always been a boisterous player, and so hopefully he can rein that in. He is you know the talent. It speaks for itself. It almost reminds me a little. I feel like young Djokovic. Again, no racial slurs, yeah. but young Djokovic was frisky. Yeah, no, no, I, I definitely, I think that's a fair comparison. I actually thought of Joker when I thought of that. Um, because at least I, I wouldn't compare him to Kyrgios because Kyrgios just tanks. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but I would, yeah, I would c- compare it to Joker in the sense of, you know, what Nick, Nick McCarville always uses the word villain. He mm-hmm. is kind of a, a villain. But I think Joker's, Joker wasn't nearly as contentious. And... Um, but he's okay with, with conflict. And I think if he could tone it down to the level of what Joker does, uh, I think that would be much more respectful and easier to swallow. And I think that would behoove him down the long run. Yeah. And I think because of how young Daniil Medvedev is, we will have the chance to see him play more down the stretch. I think he's in the draw at St. Petersburg. One can only wonder how many rubles he was offered in an appearance fee. It's like, here's, you know, <laughs> everything. Cause I don't know why he would be playing so, you know, so quickly after that, but uh, with any any final U.S. Open thoughts? Because I do want to get into the Perim Syrup Pat story. Oh, man. Gosh. Jeez. Uh, any U.S. Open? 
Uh, no, I mean, you know, it was honestly that show and I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating or being hyperbolic, but it was probably one of, if not the most fun shows I've ever done in my career. And I, I feel like I've done quite a bit. I've done a lot of sports centers and first takes radio and all that stuff. But, um, I don't know. I just thought the USTA and the company who produced it, Intersport did a really good job of finding a good team of people and we just had we just had a blast so i and, don't know no that team chemistry it showed that's why all 92 hours were enjoyable to watch um i don't know maybe <laughs> hour 36 that. you guys nick curious <laughs> a little bit but like you know only one that's still you know 90 what is that like a 98 yeah. percent not bad I believe it was hour 50 when I started talking about my C-section playlist and, and Spanx. And I think that's when we started to run out of some tenants to talk about. But I was like, well, you ask us to talk for eight hours. I'm going to bring up some really things that are just off the cuff. Yeah, no, counterpoint, as the son of an ob I loved it. So, uh, that was, yeah, that's my type wait, of content. Oh, wait, your dad's an uh, OBGYN? Oh, uh, my mom. Your mom. My dad yeah. was too. Really? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah. There. I knew we had something. You could tell the chemistry. Yeah. Was, yeah it's just incredible. Um, way too much OBGYN talk at the moment <laughs> on a yeah. tennis oh. pod. <laughs> I mean, if you want to know how I learned of an STD, I'm like two years old at the kitchen table and my mom goes, Stop I have an it. older brother and she comes up with the photo and she's like, hey, this is bad. Like you don't no, want to. Yeah. I mean, she's a straight shooter. Big fan of hers. She's oh going to listen hilarious. to this and- She's going to love it. She's like, oh, my God, her dad's an, an OBJ. Let me get in contact with him. Um, well, you know what? That's, that's, that was the complete opposite of my childhood because coming <laughs> from an Asian background is basically you don't talk about sex. Don't talk about drugs. You just don't, you just don't do them, nor yeah. do we talk about it. Yeah, so yeah, it was like, a little different background. Okay. Yeah, as the Jewish background, grandma's calling you fat at age three. So I'm like, yeah. I got to get my stuff That's together. A, but you know what? Asian Asians also do that as well. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, the chemistry in this podcast, quite <laughs> clear. Um, but yeah. you talk about doing so many things in your past. You are a former ESPNer, now at The Athletic. But I know tennis yeah. has always been something you have been, that's been a part of your life. Can you tell our listeners how you got into the sport? Yeah, I picked up a racket at the age of seven. I was born in Mexico, Missouri. So the small town and public courts of Mexico, Missouri, home of Coach Ty Lu, uh, if you're making any sports references there. But my family, my parents and brother, everybody picked up a racket. And, and so it was just kind of a communal thing to do. But being, I've noticed this in other families, but the baby of the family typically ex- ends up excelling at a certain activity, you know, because I think just they pick it up at a younger age and they also have older people to play with. And um, so, yeah, I, uh, I started showing some signs of potential, I guess. And um, at nine, I think it was, I beat the entire high school team. And so my dad was like, well, maybe this might be something. So we started looking at tennis academies and, and at 12, we decided to, to pull the trigger and um, make tennis a part of my future. So my mom came with me to Tampa, Florida to go to uh, Saddlebrook Tennis Academy, which is where Roddick and Hingis and Sampras, Capriotti all went. Um, and back then it was only a couple tennis academies. It was us and Voluntary, which is now IMG. Mm-hmm. And so from there, I, um, I went uh, and played juniors. I went from no national ranking 
to 66 in the country and then 13 and then seven. And, um, by the time I was 17 and 18 played on the U S national team and then off I went to play at Duke. And you said you weren't a Sean McVay type 66, 13, seven. That's pretty good. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely, if I was a Sean McVay type where I had a picture perfect photographic memory and remembered every single thing about what I did and also studied the game like he does, I would have been significantly better. I can tell you that much. Way better. You must have been pretty good to make the decision uh, to go to Saddlebrook. And I'm curious, looking back, what do you think of that choice to go full-time? Is that something you'd recommend? You know, what were the pros and cons of that choice? Ah, what a loaded question. I mean... (laughs) Um, how we knew, so, you know, my, my parents, uh, coming from an Asian background where they encouraged kids to participate in multiple activities. So I did a lot of music, piano, sax, um, good student and played other sports as well. But we just started noticing that my, my physical capabilities just kind of gravitated and excelled in tennis. So that's how we kind of made the decision. Cause I know there's a lot of parents that ask ask myself and other people, you know, how do you know if your kid is good at something or how to know when to pull the trigger and, and to start specializing, specializing. But that's how we kind of made the decision. And obviously like at 12, you know, went school and I was also doing ballet. It was between tennis and ballet. Something kind of has to give. So that's why we, we decided to go to the tennis academy where, um, you know, I could do school, school in the morning and then tennis in the afternoon. But I think I, I would I wouldn't change anything in the world in terms of the decision that I made to go to a tennis academy. However, um, there were there would be a lot of things I would change in terms of the type of training I did. But back then, we did the best that we could with what we knew. Um, but the, the whole reason why I did my comeback was several years ago um, at the age of thirty five was to so I could do things differently because now there's been so many advances in strength and conditioning and recovery that, um, I don't know if I would have prevented any of my surgeries, but it would have actually, it would have definitely helped. That comeback that you mentioned in 2017, the focus of the documentary second life, which was about, uh, you know, your comeback trail, what it's like when you're playing, uh, an athlete's life without sports and what it's like when you're making that transition, for you, again, what, uh, this is a loaded question as well, but what was the most enjoyable parts of making that sort of documentary? Oh, man. I mean, just self-discovery and healing. Healing was a big part of it. Um, the reason, the whole reason behind me coming back was because I had not realized for whatever it was, 15 years, 13 years, ever since I graduated from Duke, I didn't realize that I was holding this weight. And I was that unhappy with how my career ended at Duke. A lot of it had to do with my three surgeries, my junior year, but also a lot of it was struggling and not, not being able to land a spot in the lineup. And we had a really talented and deep team. And I struggled with the thought of being ranked top 10 in the country coming in as a freshman. And I, I was playing six on the lineup and sometimes not even playing. And then I got injured. And, um, so there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of just, uh, regrets, not the right word, but just a lot of pain about how I ended my career, especially now having explained my path with tennis and how I put almost too much emphasis 
on tennis as part of my identity, it was, um, yeah, it was a huge reason why I came back. So I think a lot of it was the biggest thing that I got out of it was, was healing and being able to control how I went and walked away from the sport, even though it did end up in another surgery, but (laughs) I was able to at least go out on my own terms. It's a very nerdy question, but for me, and just so you know, I'm 23 and it's not like I've been out of the game that long, but like Mm -hmm. I, I don't play as frequently as I did even in college. I've been out of college and this is my third year out. Um, and so for, for you to take, had the layoff that you did to come back on the court, just tennis wise, how hard was it at first to find your rhythm? Oh my God. It was miserably difficult. (laughs) It was so difficult. And I, now I understand I don't think people fully understand how difficult it is, but maybe watching Serena and what she's had to go through, maybe it might give a little insight into how difficult it is because when when she walked away, she was, she was on top of the world and dominating and winning grand slams left and right. And look what's happened in just two years. It, It was, I had to literally relearn the game. And I almost felt like I had to start from square one, not even joking because, um, every sport, this is not just tennis, but every sport changes every five years. And that means footwork, how people move, how people hit the ball, technical equipment, um, strength and conditioning programming, even warming up. I would start to warm up and I would, you know, use, I, I explained this in my feature that we post on us open now, but I, in the beginning, when I, when I start warming up, I would sit there and I would, you know, hold my shoulder across to, to, for the shoulder stretch and my triceps and pull it across your body, hold there for about 20, 30 seconds. And somebody was like, no, that's not how we warm up anymore, <laughs> you know, and that's static stretching. So these days they use what's called dynamic stretching, which mm-hmm. is basically hold, holding a pose for anywhere from three to five seconds because they've found through research that static stretching actually prohibits and inhibits the fast twitch muscles. And so anyways, like just little things like that, that I'm like, I got to stop for, I got to start from square one. And then now they also do prehab work, which is basically rehabilitation, but they call it prehab because, so you do that as part of your warm up before your warm up, and then you warm up to go play tennis. And then, I mean, it was, it was not easy. I mean, it's yeah. The foot, no, it's the footwork too, right? Like I go out there now yeah. and it's not nearly comparable. You're trying to make a push to the pros, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure I would get to that forehand. Like six months, I'm like, my, I can get to that ball. And then you just can't. And so, <laughs> yeah. so it's just, you know, you're devastated or you're yanking things wide. Everything's a little flatter than you remember. Um, right. Despite all of those struggles, did the mental side of just, that the freedom to be back out there again, the joy of getting to train, um, did that outweigh all of, you know, all of the rough parts of the process? Oh, it did. It was, it was so enjoyable. And I am so happy that I had the opportunity to do it in terms of just the timing and resources and everything. I'm, you know, a lot of people know my story of, you know, I was part of the, the, the wave of layoffs with the talent back in April of 
2017. But prior to that was, I was just like, man, I just need a summer. I just need one summer. I want one summer to be an athlete again. That's all I want. I just want one summer. You know what? You better be careful for what you wish for because if you put out to the universe, you're going to get it. And I got it. <laughs> so I was like, I took one summer to go be an athlete again. Um, and it was, it was so rewarding. And I think the biggest lesson that I learned, and I hope if there's a lot of athletes or just anyone in general listening, is I realized that closure is not about the results. It can't be about the results. And it certainly can't be about winning or losing. But it's a feeling. And it's a feeling of acceptance. Um, and going out on your own terms, because that was the part that was, that was eye opening to me, because at first I thought that my, you know, I had dreams of like going out and playing professionally and winning tournaments and maybe boosting my ranking and becoming top 300 in the world and all that stuff. And I realized that that was just not feasible unless I was going to be really committed to it and and spend two, three, four years doing this. I wasn't going to do that, but it's, it closure doesn't have to be about results. It's a feeling. And a feeling of acceptance and healing. Well, oh, beautiful rhyme. Closure is a feeling of acceptance and healing. <laughs> I feel like we can lock that in for the pod title. Um, but <laughs> f- for you, again, stupid question I acknowledge, but I often There's, think this about... No, no you're wrong. There are stupid questions. Uh, this will this this be a dumb one, but you'll like it. Um, so I often think, can my... Because I, I played club tennis in college, and I really do mm-hmm. think my 21-year-old senior self would have beaten my 17-year-old senior in high school self. Who wins yeah. for you, you know, you in 2017 post comeback or you going freshly into Duke? Man, that's such a good question. And I've thought about that. Um, <laughs> All I, tennis players do. You have to. You know what? I actually didn't think about it until my dad said something. I was, I just finished up my summer and I flew back to Seattle, go see my family after that summer run. And I didn't have anyone to hit with. So I was like, hey, dad, can you just feed me some balls? And we had we had been on the court together in, gosh, like 20 plus years. So that was cool. And I got to be on the court with him and he saw me serve and hit. And he's like, wow, you're <laughs> you serve better than you did in college. And I think you're the way you hit the ball, the heaviness and the, the amount of power and topspin that you put on the ball generally in your ground strokes and your in the placement of your serve. He thought I was better than what I had been in college. And in co- like, you know, uh, this is not me bragging, but I, I, I wasn't. You by, played college tennis. You were good. Yeah. yeah were but really also by good. 17, I was training with Martina Hingis, who was yeah. number one in the world. And by 15, I was hitting with Jennifer Capriotti, who was number one in the world. So it's not like I wasn't like, I wasn't shabby by any means, <laughs> you know? So to think that I might have been better, and I, I didn't feel that way because it's in my head, I think of myself at 18 just being so well-conditioned mm-hmm. and having this Tiger Woods-type confidence, even though I was not Tiger Woods. But, like, <laughs> you know, you just have this mm-hmm. distorted view of your athletic abilities. So I, I don't have the answer to that question, but there's been a few people that have mentioned that I that maybe the latest version was actually better than my college version. Well, that's the thing. You talk about Roger Federer, who's had, what, 20 slams over, like, two decades. It's like, who really mm-hmm. would win? Because I'd make an argument, 2005 Roger was a little chubby. And maybe it's just the clothes were baggier <laughs> then, and just everyone looked a little dad bod situation Yeah, going on. exactly. But, like, who would win? 2017 Roger, who won two slams, or 20. 20- 
2006 Roger who won three slams or whatever. And it's, it is fascinating to see just how the, you know, for Federer to maintain the level, maybe even get better. It's just, it's a really interesting part of tennis is to watch how each player develops over the years. But, you know, you've been so generous with your time. Last serious question for you. And then I want to have a little fun to end out. Okay. But uh, for you, uh, you mentioned your college tennis experience at Duke and just getting the chance to be at Duke. Uh, play college tennis and even though you know, you know you didn't go directly to the pros you did get to dabble there as well but how how good was, was it for you to have that college experience and how would you recommend for any players uh, with pro aspirations to take the route of go to college first because tennis will always be there after but you know college isn't always something you'll get to go back to you know I think it depends on the on the player yeah if, if we're talking about Bianca and Drescu She's got talents that are clearly going to transcend over to the to the pro level. I'm like, you got to go, you got to go, you know. But um, but I I loved my Duke experience, and I think it prepared me in so many ways. Not just not just academically, but I think my tennis experience really taught me a lot of things and prepared me for for life in the real world. Um, you know, whether that's learning how to be a team player, uh, how to juggle a lot of responsibilities. You know, on in the classroom and on the tennis court, um, learning how to manage expectations. That was something that I really struggled with just being part of that. You know, we were top five in the country and I, it was hard for me to think it was easy for me coming in because tennis is an individual sport. And before I joined Duke, I was like, well, if I lose, it's just on me. Um, but now being part of a huge and prestigious institution like Duke, I was like, well, if I lose now I'm letting my team down and I felt like the school and that was a huge adjustment for me. So, um, yeah, I mean, ultimately I, I would encourage people to, I would highly consider going to college and at least spending a year or two, two years there. Because now you have the option of leaving and then you can come back and actually get your scholarship back. Yeah. So No, it, it's, it's I, I mean, if you're, exactly, if you're that good, there's a generation on the guy side of Opelka, Fritz, and Tommy Paul. They all won junior slams and then they all decide to skip college. Yeah, for Bianca Andreescu, she's 19 years old, right? She's a slam champion. But as a big fan of college tennis, I just, I always loved hearing those perspectives uh, from people who played on the ins and out of that. But with that being said, oh, sorry. No, no, I was just, I was going to say, is there anyone that went and played college tennis that says, no, I wouldn't go? Well, I mean, <laughs> no, yeah, not really. But a lot of people who played, I, yeah, I don't know, there's an overlap of maybe not as successful because you went to college tennis. I don't want to throw anyone under the bus with all due respect. You're all great. Anyone who's come on the podcast, I love. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, if you play college tennis, you generally do love it. But with that being said, there's one last thing I want to do. We like to end all, all of our interviews with a rapid fire segment, give our listeners one more chance to learn a little bit about you. And I should say rapid fire in the sense that I'm going to be asking a lot of questions. Uh, feel okay. free to take as long as you want on each answer. Okay. I'll keep them. I'll, I'll try to keep them succinct. <laughs> right, keep I, it, we'll keep it flowing. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, Westoff, give me a rapid fire sound effect, please. All right, we'll start with some Duke tennis team questions. And I like to ask about your teammates and your experiences with them because for our listeners who don't know, most of your college tennis experience is spent with those teammates practicing and not playing matches. So yeah. my question to you, your favorite practice partner? 
Oh, my favorite practice partner. Oh my gosh. Uh, probably Ansley Cargill was really fun. She played number one, my, um, I think it was my junior year, but she was only there at Duke for, for one year. Cause she, she decided to go to the pros, but she was, she was a fun player to hit with, but honestly, everybody on our, our team was really good. So, yeah. um, national yeah. indoor champions, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, I love it. Well, then this Shout is a fun, the, uh, teammate most likely to hook you in practice. Ah, <laughs> Most likely to hook me. Uh, there was this girl. <laughs> <laughs> Good. There, there's always an answer. There is. There is. Shout out to uh, Erica. Erica <laughs> was one of my teammates, but maybe she she had a lot of fun. She was hilarious, but she might have been the one to call some close calls. Maybe. <laughs> maybe her eyesight was a little shaky that day or something. So she just likes to bring out the best of you. Um, yeah. yeah. A little adversity <laughs> in practice never hurt. All right, my last teammate, the best teammate to go out with. Oh. Mm, I would say either Kathy Sell Smith uh, or my other roommate, Katie Granson Cassis now. Um, <laughs> Kathy was two, she was two years older than me. And she was named the student athlete of the year alongside Shane Battier. If that gives you any sort of indication That's of who crazy. she was, but she knew everybody and everybody loved her and she knew everybody on the basketball team. So, and just like anybody that was cool, I'm not saying that the basketball team was cool. I'm just saying like, she just, she was good people with a good heart. So, I mean, the I both like. of them were, yeah. Good answer. And shout out again to fellow Detroit Country Day Yellow Jackets, Shane Battier. Go Jackets. <laughs> um, but I guess that's just a me thing. All right, we're, we'll move no, on. No, that's good. Yeah, we'll move on to the others. Uh, the dream tennis interview for you, someone you haven't yet interviewed but would like to. Ooh. Um, I would say I've interviewed Serena Williams, but I would say Serena 10 years after she's retired. Interesting. Just to see what she's um, up to? No, because I think that when, and I saw this when, I saw a little bit of this when um, when we were at the U.S. Open. I interviewed, when we interviewed Kobe Bryant. Oh, man, who was another player? There was another athlete that I recently interviewed who's retired, and they were they were just so much more, the, the walls are down. Um, oh, that was my, my, my childhood, uh, Andy Roddick. <laughs> so, and I've known Andy since we were little, cause he, he went to the academy as well, but interviewing the both of them several years after they have now retired, I just noticed a difference in their energy. They are much more open. The walls are down. They're less protective, um, of their, of themselves as well as they should be because, you know, when they're playing, the media is coming at them with all kinds of different things, right? And, um, and they have, they've matured as a person and they, their perspective of themselves and their careers is just significant and so meaningful. And I think that if I were able to interview Serena 10 years after she retired, I would, that would be awesome. Yeah, I look forward, hopefully, to watching that interview someday. But I feel like it's not going to be until yeah. 2030. So, like, we've got some Yeah, we've been, <laughs> yeah. we might have several years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, stupid question. But what hurts more, two stress fractures in the back or the sh shoulder surgery and surgery on both knees? 
Those two stress fractures on my back, actually. Yeah, I, were, the, the, yeah. When the back is shot, it's just over. Yeah, anything with the back and also stomach, anything with the core, it is grueling. I mean, at least with your extremities for my knees and my shoulder, you could just keep it in embrace and you could still do other things. But when the back is shut down, I mean, I could barely walk. I could barely walk across the street. It was debilitating. Yeah, don't it. don't break your back. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, all right. <laughs> Favorite instrument, piano, clarinet, or saxophone? Piano. Without question? Yeah. You know, you can, it's kind of like a lifelong thing that you can do. You can't, I don't know, picking up a clarinet. I don't know. I don't really love, that's not my favorite sound. And also picking up a saxophone, you got to pull out the reed and clean it (laughs) and put it back on. And if you haven't cleaned the saxophone, it's disgusting. It's not something that you can necessarily pop out, you know? Yeah. Without endorsing or speaking at length about any political candidate, Bill Clinton on Arsenio Hall is one of my favorite YouTube highlights. I'll watch that. Like (laughs) That would be so cool to see someone do something like that now. But that's hilarious. I'm expecting some piano playing on next year's U.S. Open now. Oh, wow. 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 That's a lot of that's I got to practice. We'll find someone. I feel like Nick would be a good singer. I feel like he could belt out some tunes. We could coordinate. He's been very, I tried, I don't know what we were talking about, but he was, I mentioned, I was like, Hey, you gotta, can you, let's do a little singing <laughs> on the show today. He's, you know, he was no, no, no. <laughs> so he doesn't seem to be like a big karaoke person. So we might have to give him a clarinet or something. Yeah. Well, well yeah, he can get a little triangle action. We'll find a role for him. <laughs> <Try that. laughs> um, all right. Yeah. The event uh, that you have not yet covered tennis wise that you would like to. Aussie Open. I haven't covered the Aussie Open yet. Ooh, uh, hopefully you'll be get down there 2020. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe yeah. if uh, the if they have the Aussie Open Now show, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be rad. Um, Is Andrew yeah. Bogut the Kobe Bryant of Australia? Would that be like the I equivalent? Would, I don't know. I would have to think about. I don't know if he. I mean, Kobe's pretty. Yeah, Kobe Bryant might be the Kobe Bryant of Australia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Uh, um, I think I think Kobe might be just. Yeah, I think you're right. I think Kobe just might be Kobe everywhere. Yeah, that's fair. Um, all right, favorite favorite player in the world, tennis wise. Oh, you're gonna ask me that? <laughs> I got you. Uh, oh no! Do a lot of people say I don't have one? Uh, I bet Nick. I know Nick said definitely no. Yeah, right? a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people say different ones. A lot of people will say players who are retired if they don't want to get in trouble. Yeah. Well, you know what? I was going to say Andre Agassi. Yeah, that, that counts. That tells me. Wow. So <laughs> I, I don't know what that tells me about you. It means you're a fiery returner, I suppose. <laughs> well, I think I liked him because he was. I loved his book. His his book open was a huge. Uh, a huge part of my personal journey. Um, but I, I just like, I don't know, I like, I loved what he did with the sport. And then I loved him opening himself up to all the little secrets that he, uh, that he held and endured during his career, including the hairpiece. <laughs> Very true. It was, <laughs> it was a staple. I'm, I may be featuring one myself in the upcoming years. But my last question to you, because I saw a tweet, I believe there was a warm up song that popped up on your phone today. <laughs> so your go to warm up song before each tennis practice? Yeah, I think we uh, I don't know, it would change. But I guess like at least for today, what the, the one that you're talking about is T.I.'s Bring Them Out. 
bring them out, bring them out. Yeah, <laughs> we were, that was one of our Twitter questions on, on the show. And it was funny hearing everybody's, uh, hearing everybody's response. I think Nick's was more kind of like the old school rock and roll. Jamie might've been a little rock and roll, maybe country. And of course me, everybody knew for whatever reason that I was all like nineties hip hop and rap. I was the, I was like the curios <laughs> of the group. <laughs> uh, I love it. And according to your dad, you've got to serve now too. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Uh, well, with that being said, Prim, uh, before we wrap, just where for our listeners who enjoyed this conversation, who enjoyed watching you on us open now, where can they follow all of your stuff? Uh, you can follow me on prim underscore seripapat. <laughs> My last name is very long and same thing on Twitter, but I think if you just put prim underscore, you can check out all my stuff. And then, um, we are still in the process of building my new show with the athletic. It's called the next chapter with prim seripapat. So stay tuned for that. Mm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, again, prim, thank you so much for taking the time as a huge fan of yours over the year. This was an absolute pleasure to me and hey, anytime, you know, you're welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. And by the way, how many rackets have you cracked? Because obviously, <laughs> if you named it this, you must have cracked a lot of rackets. So, great question. We used to ask that as a rapid fire as well as the last time you cracked a racket. But too many people were like, you know, I've never cracked one. And I Are have never. Serious? So, again, I come from a Jewish background. I know the amount of grief I would get if I cracked a racket. Not once have I cracked one. Oh Way too afraid. Are you serious? Yeah. I'm, I'm not good. You had a Wilson or Bablot sponsorship or whatever. I crack a racket. I'm like, That's... all right, I'm down to two yeah. uh the last time i cracked my racket was the first professional tournament i had played in over 15 years it was at my at Saddlerick, my old tennis academy when i was doing my comeback and i was playing qualifying and i was up five two in the second set and the girl came back and i hit i smashed my racket <laughs> on the heel of my foot and it just went it was like a high pitch like and it was my bachelorette party, too. So all my girlfriends were sitting on the fence. I know. How lame is that? I held my bachelorette party at a professional tournament. And I cracked it. And so I, I had to play the next point because I didn't want to be penalized for cracking the racket. So I had to play the next point with it. And I went and changed my racket. That was a so, good, that's hilarious. It felt good, though, I bet. You're like, I haven't done that in a while. Well, you know what? It was actually kind of embarrassing cause looking back at it because it's like, here I am. I'm, I'm, pl I'm making a comeback. I'm a grown adult. <laughs> like you shouldn't be cracking your rack. I mean, that's just poor behavior. You know, I should have been like smiling and having fun, not cracking my rack. You know what I mean? Especially as a grown adult. Like that's embarrassing. I mean, don't the do that. The counterpoint is tennis wise. You were still age 23. So like, it makes sense. Um, it was, yeah. yeah, it was on the comeback. I, I, it's half the experience. You're not fully back till you've cracked your racket. Um, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so yeah. I appreciate hearing your CR story. But again, Prim, thank you so much, and we look forward to hearing and following all of your content soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course, take care. <laughs>